Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Chat with Cheney. Today is the S&P 4400 special, so I'm very excited to kick things off with that. And I'm also joined by two of my close friends. That's Keith and Alex. Uh, Keith, you might know as the Wolf of Walmart, kind of a pioneer in the financial Twitch space. So I'm excited to have him with us as uh, as well and get his perspective on kind of the unique retail situation that's going on with Robinhood and kind of his pulse on that and just talk about some other things uh, with everybody here today. So uh, I really hope you enjoy this episode and uh, we'll jump right into it. What's up, guys? How are you guys doing? I'm uh, good, Cheney. Uh, I've got pizza rolls and I'm chilling. I'm I'm doing good. Uh, I went out went out dancing last night, so I'm recovering today. But I have a nice local IPA that is taking the edge off. <laughs> I uh, I've got my 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 Genesee my Genesee beer, um, but it's their their summer specialty, so it's not as bad as you think. What is it? Gen- is that anything like Hennessy? No. <laughs> It's this brewery in uh, in New York, but I thought it was like more widespread. Like I thought it was um kind of like you know national. I guess not. No, I wasn't even kidding when I asked if it was anything like Hennessy. It sounds like Genesee, Hennessy. No, Jenny. Like Jenny Light. Uh uh-uh. uh <laughs> No, really. Uh uh-uh. All right. Interesting. Yeah, it's not good, but uh, but yeah. So um, I got it and uh, drinking it. So <laughs> that's beer. It's beer. It's not a liqueur. Yes, it's it's beer. Uh, can I kick off our conversation by saying something really broad? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Today I was uh, preparing to I was preparing to come onto here, and I was like, you know, throwing some burgers out on the onto a plate, and I go to light my grill, and uh, my igniter broke, so I light it with a bic lighter now, and uh, I was I was in my haste, I didn't realize that all of the burners were on, <laughs> and I, I'm down there with a bic lighter, and I light. Every single burner just flickers across, and uh, I burned all the hair off of my fingers. I was gonna say, do you have any eyebrows left, or so do you? My eyebrows are there because I'm I'm a tall, lanky individual. I've got a <laughs> I've got a wingspan, but um, it 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 made me in like that one moment. It was like a two second moment. I was like, all right, I every time I rush, I fuck up every <laughs> single time. Yeah, that's life, though. I mean, uh, for me at least. The, the more calm, cool, and collected and, you know, planned I am in things, the better I am at it. And I think that translates, like, to every aspect of my life, especially, like, my work, like, my trading. If I make a plan and follow it and, you know, really follow, you know, just execute exactly what I planned out, I usually do pretty good. And what happens when I get it myself into trouble is when I'm, like, you know, I just kind of mash in a ticker and I'm, like, oh, yeah, like, this looks good. And I haven't really done all my my checklist, you know, so to speak, or I'll be in a position, you know, I'll do a lot of research about like whether I want to how I want to trade a position like I'll go out and long it and everything and it'll go up just like a ton and I'll be like, oh, wow, I'm doing really well. And just because it went up a ton, I'll get like bearish on it. So I'll flip my position and reverse it. And that's almost every single time and I wind up hurting myself because if I follow my plans and I plan a little bit more, it usually works out. But what is that checklist? Your checklist? You follow a checklist? It's not like a 
it's not a formal checklist, but I think like there's certain things I always check, you know, like, and it's kind of broken up into different buckets, you know, like what's the fundamental view of the individual asset? Like if it's a company, like what is the balance sheet look like? Then I look at what's the overall macro outlook for this asset. Then I look at the technicals and how they fit in, you know, so, and then I look at things that are kind of idiosyncratic or, or extraneous like okay are there any news stories going on or are there any um kind of strange situations like is this being targeted by a bunch of retail traders or something like that so i mean there's just like certain things that i like to go through for each and every trade um i mean and, and it's I, I would say it's less and less important when you're trading like a whole index or like a whole basket of assets that are roughly in the same category like you know, a semiconductor ETF, because day in and day out, the whole situation isn't going to change. It's going to change for each individual component, but probably not for the whole basket. But if you're looking at an individual ticker or an individual asset, like a specific commodity, it's probably important to, you know, go through that list. Well, for me, at least. Other people, I think, are really good at just kind of like playing it by ear, but that's not me. What What about, okay, so like narrow that into like um, hot topics such as gold tonight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what's your What's your checklist on that? What is your checklist saying about that shit? So my checklist for that is uh, buy it and hold it. <laughs> do you? What do you? Uh, there's this crazy floor guy at this job site I was at last week. Who was he? Is fucking nuts. But that just boils down to like he's telling me to buy coins, <laughs> like to buy like silver coins and how much Troy ounce is a scam. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I buy I buy coins um, now as well. I didn't used to. I, like, this is actually the first um, year where I've really gotten into purchasing actual bullion. Now, I've had metals in my portfolio to some extent on and off in years past, but... Um, You've gotten more bearish then, right? No, it's not that. It's just so, like, whenever, like, you know, a family member or a friend has a kid or you're going to some kind of party or whatever, you know, like an, for an event celebration, like a wedding or something like that, I would get people bonds. And um, now I just don't really see any point to do that because, like, I can go and get people a physical bond and it yields, like, one and a quarter, if that, maybe, probably not. And then, like, what are they going to do with that? So it's more exciting, I think, to give people um, coins right now. And it's, it's just, like, a, I use it primarily for gift-giving. But it's kind of opened my eyes to like actually going out and buying bullion and like how large the disconnect is between um, kind of like the spot market, for, like for financialized metals, and then going out and actual buying coins, you know, and what's the actual yeah. price of silver per ounce. And it's a huge disconnect. And even more than that, there's a big disconnect between buying the physical metal for like buying one or 10 or 15 ounces of gold or silver, you know, in coins and buying a hundred or a thousand ounces in physical silver as an investor or a fund, there's a huge disconnect even in those prices. So there's kind of like three different tiers as far as like what the price actually is for those assets, if that makes any sense. I like, I like to buy uh, once second, I just like to buy, um, I like to buy ingots at closest to spot price. I mean, it's it, it's also nice to just be able to to hold it too and like look at it. If you buy like a financial instrument, it's just like 
some numbers somewhere but like if you actually have it it's just like a nice thing oh yeah that's a huge thing and like i think that's part of the reason like i enjoy giving it as gifts is because it's a really great way to like get somebody involved or interested in planning for their financial future right because like if you get a gift for you know a, a kid who just graduated college or whatever and you get them a bond they probably they just aren't interested <laughs> you know like but if you get them something round and shiny and dense it's like it's it can sometimes and i've seen it before now not always um but sometimes it sparks a lot of interest in them and to get when you're you know to get involved or interested in investing when you're 23 is or 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 yeah that's when people right 23 that's when the people graduate yeah um, 23 yeah yeah, 23, like, 22. that's so powerful because most of the time people wind up getting to around like 30 or so. And then they're like, hey, you know, I I actually want to not work someday. Like I, it'd be cool to retire. And by then they've given up the best years of their investing potential. You know, so I think this it's like everything else. The sooner you get involved in it, the better. But um, it's just like a really powerful way to do that. Yeah, well, what is like, I was watching a video earlier today and I don't know if this statistic is a hundred percent correct, but it's like, if you have $5,000 in hand and you just save that compounded at 7% for 10 years, you have like what at $60,000 or is it 20 years, 20 years, maybe that's insane. That's crazy. But yeah, like that, com that compounding effect is so critical. And it's like, if you think if you're, if you're starting with $5,000 and then you just contribute like a hundred dollars, you know, like every other week, you know, like that adds up, right? So like if you, and, and that's the thing that I tell people, um, like for younger kids, I guess, if you're starting out and you can only afford to put in $20 a week, let's say, um, you know, that's $100 a month, you might be looking at it and going, okay, so if I get an 8% return in 30 years, that's only going to be like 300 grand. And I've been saving for 30 years, but you're not going to make, um, like, like if, if you're 20 years old, you know, $20 a week is going to be more to you now than when you're 30, because you're going to move up the ladder of wherever you work, or you're going to improve your skill set. So even if it doesn't seem like it's worth it right now, that it's still critical. And I mean, not for nothing, but like, if you if you're contributing like $20 a week, you're only going to put in like $36,000 by the time 30 years is up and you're going to wind up with 300,000. So like, that's a pretty good return, you know, with that 8% compounded and it, and like, you don't, you don't have to kill it, right? Like that's the other thing. Like people always want that hundred percent return or whatever. It is nice when you get it, but like one, it's unreasonable expectation. And two, you just don't need that. Like if you return eight, 10, 12%, which, and 12% is phenomenal, right? If you do that every year for 20 years, you're going to be set just unbelievably good to go. So I don't really understand a lot of the mentality. I, I, I understand it, but I think it's the wrong mentality to have when you're, when you're, you're swinging for the fences every single time. Well, I, I, I think a lot of it has to do with like time too. like uh, the, my first investment I ever made. Uh, I was, I was a child and I got $300 for Christmas and uh, my parents took me to like, an actual stockbroker. And I sat down with them and I talked about stuff with them. And I, I wanted to invest in bank because, I mean, as a kid, like, that's, that's 
has all the money is the banks. Right, that's where the money is. <laughs> so, so, like, all of that's obvious. Um, but I, I sat there, and he explained to me, like, how, like, that wasn't the type of thing that I would want to invest in. And, like, I understood that. So I ended up choosing Home Depot. And I bought 16, I bought 16 shares of Home Depot at $14 a share. As, yeah. <laughs> as, as a child. And this was 15, 20 years ago. And yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think just like that, like that, that had a huge impact on me because like looking at that now, that's, it's well above, uh, I'm sure we're trading at right now, but it's definitely well above $16 a share. Um, yeah, you've, you've returned more than the, the 8% a year, right? Which is like generally my target for like rough benchmark. Cause that's what the S and P returns over long stretches of time, including dividends. Yeah you know eight percent a year compounded but uh, yeah you I'm, knocked it out of the park with that one give me yeah, the name of your uh, advisor there <laughs> oh, oh yeah the, well the, that, that was a great pick but my other pick um when i when i went back the second time is i loved going to blockbuster and i loved renting movies and video games there no, fuck, no fucking way <laughs> so so i i went back with my my three hundred dollars and i wanted to buy blockbuster shares um and of course i did and they're absolutely now <laughs> oh, dude, don't, don't you know it's like going to like a hundred thousand dollars a share they're pivoting they're uh they're, they're gonna do some, something with nfts yeah yeah <laughs> the, 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 the share oh, oh wait you said you said blockbuster oh wait my bad my bad the, 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 the share price is lying right now you gotta just it'll moon a day yeah yeah it's in consolidation what do you do uh, you're hodling is that what they call it yeah nice that means holding <laughs> I, I, holding I, with failure I, I, I won't let the hedge funds take my shares I'll, I'll, I'll take blockbuster to the grave if i have to right right i think hodlings like so if you if you're like if you have shares you're holding them but if you're a bag holder then you're hodling. Like, <laughs> yeah like or like a, a, after your bags get heavy enough then it turns in from holding to hodling <laughs> that, well that's how you know that someone's a bag holder is if they if they use the term hodl yeah like, <laughs> if, like if you were up on the position you would say holding but if you're down on the position you're not you're, you're definitely saying hodling you know it's like it's like um i i don't know it's crazy the the retail terminology i love it though like you know somebody asked me they were like um why why are GameStop bag holders called apes? And it's just like I could explain it to you, but uh it's a long story, you know. <laughs> Have you ever had a client come to you asking to make them tendies? No, I ha thank God I have <laughs> I'd probably just instantly refer them to somebody else. Um but you give them my email. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean I've had people though that like, remember when Kodak spiked up to, like, $60 a share or some crazy yeah, like yeah. that? Yeah, I had people, like, call me. And these are older folks, you know, like, 60 and older, because they know Kodak. Like, they were around for, like, the actual Kodak boom. And they were like, oh, like, how much Kodak did you own? And I was like, zero, none. Like, we didn't make any money off of that. We also didn't lose anything, but, like, I'm not in kodak so you're not in kodak either you know and they're like why not and it's like well because they like haven't made any money in like my entire life <laughs> 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 so i i think people get wrapped up like you everybody wants to be invested in something once it makes a headline and that's coincidentally also most likely that's when the people want to sell yeah that's when you if you're prudent that's when you should be a seller right so like in, what's um, the old saying though 
By the yeah. rumor, sell the news. Yeah, by the rumor, sell the news. But I mean, I would attribute it kind of similarly in line with um, Benjamin Graham, you know, uh, reminiscence of a stock operator. He, and I think it's his, his quote, but he says, um, you know, the the prudent investor sells to optimists and buys from pessimists and lives in the world of realists. You know, so like once something makes it to the news, it's no longer in the realm of realism. It's either on one end of the spectrum and you just have to identify, is it realism or not realism? Is it pessimism or optimism? And it's a lot easier to, def- it's a lot easier to identify pessimism from optimism than it is to identify realism from either of the so if you know it's on the news it's on one end of the spectrum and it's easy to identify if it's not in the news then it's a little bit harder i think yeah no i agree uh well that's what the news this game is they don't they don't tell you how thing actually is they they want to rile you up and they have a narrative and a, a goal a purpose you know cnbc is not out there to make you money um if they were it uh it wouldn't be on cable tv so sorry i'm eating a pizza <laughs> <laughs> I I've always liked the the both usefulness and uselessness of the whole buy the rumor sell the news um line. It's it's so true though. I mean like the more I think of it the more like these old trading adages that are just like they sound so pointless but like there's a reason why they they exist and I think it's you know, like buy the rumor, sell the news, or like climbing a wall of worry, da da da. I think um, a lot of these, and and, and um, it's interesting how like each segment or like each specialist in their own field within finance kind of has a way to explain them. Like Kem Carson, he's done uh, a really good uh, couple of shows on other or, or interviews on other shows where he explains like what. The, these phrases mean to him or like why markets climb a wall of worry or like you know um why you want to buy the rumor and sell the news and he explains it via options flows and things like that but a value investor will come to the same conclusions but have their own explanation for why you want to do those things and i think that's really interesting and part of what makes a field dynamic um but it's so interesting that the adages have held up for in a lot of cases you know decades or or even a hundred plus years so i i don't know i just think it's interesting that um it still works <laughs> well a lot of these phrases and and yeah, my uh, favorite idioms. my favorite uh my favorite idiom or adage or uh wise line is the only thing you're gonna regret is that you didn't buy more yeah <laughs> yeah it's so true though if it if it goes up you're gonna be like wow i should have gone all in and if it goes down you're gonna say like well that was a stupid decision you'll never be happy <laughs> no. with yourself <laughs> you, no no that's the whole that's the whole new game is you never say oh that was a stupid decision you blame it on someone else and you huddle <laughs> right, yeah. the price is fake it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the price is being uh suppressed by uh jp morgan so Right. This right. this time it's, um, this time it's, it's not different. the fact that they go out and and sell. You know, the actual company that you're investing in like sells twenty percent of its equity like every other month. <laughs> Wait, what did you say, Daddy? Th- this oh, time God. it's different. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, yeah. <laughs> it's always, it's always different when it's happening to you. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, and I can't remember who said it. Um, I'm trying to remember. But they said, you know, one of the most dangerous phrases in finance is this time it's different. 
but the number one somehow more dangerous than that phrase uh most dangerous phrase is this time will never be different so i think that's just something to chew on you know it's Coddle. just interesting <laughs> but like no that's actually that that's yeah if, no that's yeah profound. i mean there's like the vast majority of time it's not going to be different but on the one chance or the one occasion it is different it's going to shake up everything you know and i think that's probably the crossroads we're in right now with this market regime is a massive battle between is it different this time or isn't it and that's where you get like the inflation deflation um you know debate and nobody seems to know what's going on with anything because of it um my honest opinion is I like to I like to act like I look so short term, but I I I can confidently act stupid as shit because I don't care about like the short term shit. Like the <laughs> next like the next thirty years, I think we're gonna be fine over the next thirty years. Really? Like, what do you mean by fine? Like, what do you see? You like, know, I don't your average. Like, what's happening? Like, all right, I, I I don't see like we're gonna hit like like no downturn in history has ever been. All right, and I'm I'm not saying this is like a I'm a soothsayer. I'm not, I'm not like any fucking seer with the eye. <laughs> but like, look at the fucking Great Depression. That was a decade. Mm-hmm. And what we we needed war to get out of that. We're in constant war. We got that constant war money. Like, <laughs> like if our country's in that much of a trouble economically, oh look, we have this huge military budget. <laughs> like, oh no. Well, like, I mean, in in, in Great Depression. In Great Depression times, though, we weren't the world economic leader. That didn't happen until after the Second World War. Great Britain was still going real strong. And I, I think what, like, would probably argue would be that, like, that that was a shift that he would be worried about, is where we're no longer that world power. The number one world power, that is. I don't think that changes. Like, land is power. Like, unless some country encroaches, like, on our territory. I don't think we're... I, what what I mean to say is that over 30 years, maybe we'll see some downturns here and there, but like people will commit to buying a house for 30 years when they're 25 or 30 or whatever. Um, and they won't even think twice about it. Like that's 30 year commitment. Um, so like I'm committing to the idea that over 30 years, like I'm, I'm not seeing that we'll see much of like a huge difference. Like I'll be sitting here 30 years later, like, yeah, times were shitty, but like, look, everything's fine now. Right. So my question is, you see that for like the actual real economy. And I kind of would be willing to agree with you. Like 30 years from now, you're still going to be able to go out, get a job and, you know, go out and get a slice of pizza after work if you want to, you know, like n- n- nobody's going to be out there eating dirt and yeah, life is going to be relatively similar maybe not technology-wise, um, but, like, relatively similar as in terms of, um, like, economic-wise to how it is now. But that's the real economy. Do you think that there's yeah. going to be a shift in the financial economy or in the valuation of financial assets? Because I can definitely see a world where the real economy, where you wake up, go to work, make a wage, pay your house, pay your electric bill, and go out with the fam to grab dinner is a reality for everybody. But the S and P has, you know, it only gone up 10% from where it is now in 30 years time. I can definitely see a situation like that. 
would you be inclined to agree or disagree with that you talking like japan style um yeah to a certain yeah. extent like i mean and it's happened with them and if you look the demographic shift which is the main cause for their issues uh well uh, most people would agree that it's the main cause for their issues um that demographic shift is happening across the world right now and the u.s is just delayed by about 15 years eventually it will come to us and it is already starting where we have an aging population a declining working age force um we have a consistent rise of automation you know and, and those are all Low, lower that, birth rates as well lower yeah lower birth rates um and and we have uh continuously i would say stricter than other countries immigration policy which prohibits us from growing the population in other ways so i mean i'm not necessarily saying that those are bad or good things one way or another i'm just saying that if you look it looks like the u.s is very similar to the to japan before you know prior to their stagnation um but with a slight lag or delay i don't think anybody can escape those demographic shifts and i think that people you know, an economist in general um, miss uh, or, or they undervalue the importance of demographics in an economy. It doesn't matter how crappy your economy is, is if, if the birth rate was 10 times higher than it is today, the economy would be booming and on a long term uptrend. And it wouldn't really matter, in my opinion, what the debt cycle was at or what it looked like. You just if you have massive demographic um, tailwinds, you're going to benefit from that. But if you have massive demographic headwinds, it doesn't matter how low interest rates are. It doesn't matter how stimulative you are to the economy. So to anyways, to make long stories longer, I would just say like, I agree with you, Wolf, that you could have a situation in which you have sustained kind of economic regularity and the world 30 years from now looks like it does today in the real economy but the financialized world or the financial economy could stagnate very easily in my opinion it's kind of wouldn't you say that i I mean stagnation hasn't really happened clearly we hit new all-time highs like all the fucking time (laughs) but (laughs) but wouldn't you say it's already changed like that that change not only is happening but like like the valuation change like like where money like circulates is already fundamentally changed like oh yeah yeah, for sure. And Over the course think, of this year. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's a massive factor for why we have the values that we have. Like the entire basis for how we value assets has shifted. And I don't necessarily think that that's a good thing. Um, but other Dude, people you will can buy an to... NFT for $100,000. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right. So I'm not against new assets, but I have to see a value in and of them myself to be i cannot go out and purchase something which i think is not worth anything in good conscience for somebody else so i mean in terms wait, of wait, like that, was, that was a weird caveat would you do it for yourself no i also wouldn't do it for myself. <laughs> okay all right <laughs> um but like that's just my take i think there are other people who are very skilled at completely disagreeing with with their clients and saying well whatever um, you know, it's a hot market and I want to make the fee or the commission and going out and doing it. So, I mean, in terms of like NFTs or crypto, which is a, a whole can of worms in and of itself, but I'm not a believer um, right now. I think that the technology is interesting and I do have some holdings that 
would benefit from the technology and are trying to implement the technology, but I don't think the coins or the NFTs themselves as they are right now are viable investments. NFTs as art is cool, but not valuable. NFTs as a tool is insanely valuable to me. Okay, that's an interesting... Yeah. So what do you mean by like a tool? Can you provide an example of where it would be a tool? Uh, one one okay. example that I heard was uh, people using like documents, like the deed of your house could be... Ownership, exactly. And that, that would prove digitally that you are the one that owns this piece of property or just other kind of documents like that. Right. Like okay. a digital wallet. Or like, okay, we have... And just anything of that sort, like documentation, deeds, fucking, um, what else was I thinking? I, I, it slipped my mind what I was thinking earlier today, and I can't look through my notes, but that, that's a good example, is ownership of land. Like, this is right. mine. It's in my digital wallet. I can't lose this. Well, then again, you kind of put all your eggs in one basket all, like, on your cell phone, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, that, see, that kind of utility makes sense to me though yeah i mean that, that, that's a stark uh difference from buying a picture of an ape or something like that that has just kind of the the kind of art that people meme and that they're selling for hundreds of thousands of dollars it's it represents actual value it's something that right. represents actual value and, and i would say it's so difficult so like if you want to go out and buy it for yourself personally not as an investment that's totally fine like so if i like um you know a particular painting i'm gonna go out and be like hey that's kind of cool and hang it up in my house but i wouldn't go out and buy it and consider it an investment a viable investment where i can project the returns and actually associate a given value on it based on some kind of fundamental thesis like i i don't even know how you could do that so i can tell you if <laughs> if you like something because you like it, go out and buy it. But I wouldn't consider that an investment. And that's kind of where I think I get lost in kind of the NFT craze or the cryptocurrency craze as where people consider the, you know, the NFTs an investment or they consider cryptos an investment. They're not investments to me. That doesn't mean you can't go out and buy them for your own personal pleasure. Um, but I mean, I, I go out and buy a, a case of beer for my own personal pleasure, and I don't consider that an investment. So. <laughs> I'll tell you what. Here, here's what you do. You download the VV app, not sponsored. You, you wait till the next <laughs> not drop. Not sponsored content. You wait till the next drop. You buy an NFT, and then you list it on the market for double what you paid for it, and it sells immediately. So why does that work? That's I don't know. No, I don't like, know. I don't know. That, so to me, that's like buying an IPO. And then listing the selling the sell, setting a limit order for the shares at double the price you bought the IPO at, and like, oh yeah, hopefully it'll fill. It's no different. It's no different. There's one caveat though on the VV app, you can't uh, take your money out once you put it in. You have to. You, yeah, you got to go to a secondary. Yeah, you have to sell. You, what do you mean you can't take your money out? You 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 can buy. You can use your dollars to buy uh, their currency called gems, and that's how you purchase things but you can't exchange back your gems for dollars. So you have to find somebody else that wants to buy your gems. At 0.75 on the dollar. Whoa, a 25% cut? Yeah, well, it's, it's mostly because you pay it. They want, to, they want to buy gems off of other people to avoid the fees. 
because when you buy like 100 gems there's like a huge fee that you pay on top of that so you'll pay like you'll pay, pay like a buck 20 for 100 gems but a gem is supposed to be one usd kind of that's a little wild that's like the only that's the only driving force for them to buy gems off of other people hmm. i want to i don't want to get super into the the crypto because i think like this is a conversation to have in and of itself yeah but that's that's kind of wild to me <laughs> yeah I mean, I mean, if 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 you're gonna run a scam, the the best way to do it is to only is to only take people's money and then their dollars and then not give them dollars back for what you give them. I I don't know. I think the best way to run a scam would be to tell people that your asset is worth U.S. dollars, but then actually not own any of that asset that you know, um, or back it by th- that asset. It's probably the best way. But but that sounds very familiar to me to to something. I ca- I can't put my put my finger on what it's yeah, called. Yeah, I can't quite put my... But, yeah, I'm not quite sure, but it does I sound think familiar. That, I think there's something like that. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, though. <laughs> All right. We, we, we got to move on before you lose me even more. <laughs> Are you guys joking about the gold standard or what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I need another drink. <laughs> here, here we go. Here's the crack. Oh, I like it. Oh, so we're going to have to say goodbye here to Alex real quick. And uh, he's going to be heading out, but we're going to finish up and wrap up with Wolf on a couple different topics. But before I do that, I just wanted to thank you, Alex, for coming out and sharing your thoughts with us. And we'll have you back on because uh, I know you got a, a wealth of information and I want to talk to you specifically about um, SPACs, the special purpose acquisition market, because um, I know you follow that pretty closely. But thank you so much for, for being with us tonight. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I will definitely be back. Uh, I'd love to. I'd love to talk about that. Um, I'll, I'll see you guys soon. Alrighty, take care, man. Later, man. Alrighty, Wolf. So I got um, one question for you, still on my mind here, which is: you brought up that retail brokerages, particularly Robinhood, have been changing some of the ways in which they verify their clientele or some of the ways in which they kind of go through and um, ask about their experiences with things or, or w- w- can you explain that to me a bit? All right. This, I, I don't know if this is like, it, it seems crazy to me. My brother was setting up an account with Robinhood, And when I, when I did it, it was like, Oh, just snap a picture of your photo ID and type in your information. This kid needs like a picture of his ID and a picture of his social security card. Is that not weird? Yeah, that is a little weird. I think in general, you just have to kind of, you have to put in your social ID, but you don't have to take a picture of it. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know where my social security card is. I can tell you that. <laughs> I think I washed mine like one too many times and like now it's doesn't it, like it's faded. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's so weird that they, they need an actual picture of it and not just a number. Um, yeah, do you think there's like an increased number of like fake accounts on Robinhood or like an increased number of Well, think about all the hoops you'd have to jump through to make a fake account with like cuz they still ask for your photo ID. So you still need a photo ID and a selfie of yourself by the way. You need a photo ID, a selfie of yourself, and now a picture of your social security card. But even if it wasn't a picture, they could run the, they could run a social security card and see which identity it matches, right? Right. Just what is the purpose of it? That seems so weird. I'm not quite sure. Do you think that in general, Robin Hood is just trying to put more um, kind of formalize the process they do and maybe the weird ways they're doing it? Because I know in the past, 
they've gotten to legitimize themselves. Yeah, well, they've gotten into trouble in the past with kind of um, how they they run their operation and don't really um, they don't really validate they, they haven't validated their customers in their very very early days, and then obviously they were you know more validating their customers as they became a quote unquote legitimate brokerage, but they weren't validating any of their clientele in terms of um, how experienced they were. I mean. Particularly when, oh. <laughs> with, with the options market, which is primarily where Robinhood drives uh, a ton of its revenues from. Um, if you were to go and apply for options trading on, say, like TD Ameritrade or Interactive Broker, um, there, there's steps to you know that verification process. Whereas in Robinhood, they don't really care as long as you got a pulse or maybe not, you know, a photo ID. <laughs> you can trade options. You need a photo ID and your social security. <laughs> it's literally like that. Like your social security card. <laughs> right. The last credit card. numbers on the back <laughs> of the credit card. Yeah. Like what's your, what's Attention. your wacky Robin Hood name? <laughs> Attention. All epic Fortnite gamers. No, literally. Um, they, they gave me the highest level option trading with, uh, with like $5 in my account. And like no, no previous history with their brokerage. Wow, that's kind of wild. Yeah. I, so I actually remember signing up for my first personal like brokerage account, and I would consider my, when I signed up at that point, I was shockingly uninformed about things. But now that I've met people in general and talked to them about this, most people I think were more informed than I was at the time. And I got nothing. Like I didn't even get margin approval when I applied. Um, really? Well, this this is years ago, but yeah. Um, like by default, I got nothing, and then I had to go in and actually apply for margin. Like, uh, like yes, there's I, an account minimum for margin, correct? Yeah, but it's only like I think it's like two thousand dollars or something yeah. at most brokerages. So I, I mean, I was starting well over the thresholds for for whatever rules they would have, but I was not. I mean, I guess I, I guess it just wasn't common practice to automatically um, authorize everybody for everything, you know. And I think mm-hmm. that that's um, a big shift over the you know the last couple of years or or, or decades. I'm not quite sure. It, I mean, it's been a, a a long duration shift. It's been changing that way for years, just like commissions have been coming down for years. Um, but I don't know. I I find that kind of interesting in that. Now we're almost we we almost went too far, I think. You know, like the pendulum swings from one end to the other, where we went from pretty much full on gatekeeping, where nobody was allowed to have any um, access to anything without pretty much posting their diploma to their broker, and now the pendulum swung so far to the other direction where you could sign your dog up for Robinhood and get them, you know, level three Robinhood options approval. Uh, with margin and leverage to the hilt, you know, whatever. And now we're kind of coming back the other way, I think, maybe. Isn't that kind of how it should be? Like, if if it's your money, like, all margin aside, but, like, your access to, like, do what you wish with these instruments that were made to be used. Like, it's your money. You want to do something that you're uninformed about. You should be allowed to do it, right? So I'm kind of in agreement with you. Um where if it's your money and you want to go out and gamble it like a casino, then that's your your choice and your option. <laughs> yeah, that's your option. Nice. <laughs> um, that's your choice. I mean, I don't think people that don't know how to play 
poker should go to the casino and sit down at a poker table, but there's nothing stopping them from doing it. Um, the problem is, I think the connotation is totally different. When you go and sit down at a poker table without knowing how to play poker, I don't think you expect to win. But for some reason, a lot of retail investors that don't know anything about what they're doing go into the market and expect to wind up millionaires somehow. And I don't quite understand why that is or why there's a disconnect there. Uh, Maybe you could chime in. They expect it because they see it. Like if if you go to the casino a lot, you don't see a lot of people like making million dollars. When you go to Wall Street bets, uh, the top fucking, the top voted thing is like someone making a million dollars every single day. Okay, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So so do you think like, um, I would, I would think yes, but do you think the rise of like social media has definitely helped to spur like this retail movement? It- so social media has has created delusions of grandeurs in all aspects of ignorant people's lives. So it, to say that it's happening in the financial market, like yeah, of course, like in the financial sense, I mean, like yeah, look, everyone wants to be that. Jake Paul, Logan Paul, they want to drive these cool cars. All these girls want to look like these Instagram models. People who like stocks, they want to make millions like these guys on Wall Street bets. It's the same. It's the same thing. Inter- yeah, I, I would agree with you. I guess I just haven't thought of it um, through that lens. So, interesting. It, my question is, do you think that there's a reversion where people get tired of it and the retail crowd phases out? And this is a big debate in, on an institutional level. Like, and because I think in the the 1990s, going into the dot com bubble, you had the advent of the um, the online brokerage, right? Like E Trade and yeah. things like that. And you had this the the internet, um, which was finally available to everybody in mass, allowed for a huge increase in amateur like retail traders. And now I look at the same thing, and instead of online brokerages and the internet, it's commission-free trading and brokerages coming onto apps. And I think that the debate is, is this going to be like the 1990s where the the bubble pops, everybody gets burned, and the, all the amateur retail traders phase out? Or is this a permanent facet of the market where we're going to have people in there forever? Like, this is the way it is where we have a permanently increased portion of volumes on stock exchanges being done by retail traders in small one or two lots, rather than the bulk of them being done by large institutional traders. I'll, I'll tell you what I think. If, are, you, are you leaning a certain way? I, I actually don't know. I've thought because about I don't, this. I don't quite understand the average retail trader, I don't think, as well as I'd like to. So I'm actually really curious on your opinion. Okay. I, I've thought about this a lot, and I, I think I can tell you exactly what happens from not firsthand experience, but firsthand um, like seeing what happens to Perfect. people. <laughs> um, no, this whole entire retail crowd will not just disappear because it's too easy, right? Not only that, uh, they're, they're spending all this time, and like first timers on Wall Street bets, even like first, say the newest person on Wall Street bets right now, they're excited, right? Like they're excited, they're they're jumping in, they're learning everything they can know. They they want to make a million dollars, not going to, but they want to. So they're doing research, they're learning, they're seeing all these things. And what's going on is that they're learning all the right things, but they're ignoring them. They're they're ignoring all the right things, and they're they're chasing those weeklies, those FDs, those whatevers, and they're going to get burnt. They're going to get burnt over a long period of time. They might hit, they might strike, 
but over the longer period of time they they get less excited they they get to the point where they're like oh while i was excited i learned about the value of these things and i fucked it up like <laughs> i like you're not complacent in the act of wasting your money on fds like you're not mm-hmm. but during the excitement you learn about the value of these tools you learn about the value of the market you learn you learn about value and um i think at the end of whatever kind of hype series we're in most people will just buy stocks most people will just trade leaps and that's like what it boils down to is like learning the value and not being excited about it anymore which is the best place to be so you think that the retail trading component is a permanent fixture of the market but the way in which they go about executing their trading or their strategies is going to evolve over time as they become more familiar with how the market actually works um, and essentially they'll stop lighting their money on fire and rather than not no longer lighting their money on fire and walking away they're gonna stop lighting their money on fire and say okay now i'm just gonna go out and buy um you know the s p or i'm gonna go out and buy my favorite tickers uh with leaps or something like that but yeah. they're not going Cause anywhere it, yeah because it's still it's still just as accessible it's still just as engaging it's still it's it like when when you're excited about something you're willing to put much more of your time into it but when you're excited about something it means you're interested in it lose the excitement you still have the interest you just don't have the willingness to put too much time into it right right they're not they're not going anywhere very interesting i I like this take and i'm gonna have to think about it a bit more but i guess that leads me to think like what are your thoughts so we recently had the robin hood ipo I know it's gotten a lot of polarizing views, but let's back up from the daily valuation of like whether it's worth 30 or 40 or 70 or 20 or zero dollars, whatever. Um, and let's talk about 30 years out. Is Robin Hood still around? Oh, yeah. Okay. And yeah. do they have more revenue 30 years from now or less revenue on an annual basis than they do now? Well, their revenue is straight from, from, front selling right uh they, they sell order flow um and, yeah. and and crypto so i i guess my 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 tear in this is I would, I, would, I would agree with you that you have i don't know now I, I you have a huge um demand for robin hood right like 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 it's still going to be around in 30 years people are still going to use it probably more people are going to use it in 30 years than they do now but is the type of use that it gets going to change if people are just buying stocks and buying leaps, um, they're going to be doing a lot less transactions. And so is their revenues going to be smaller in 30 years, even if Robinhood is bigger? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And now that I'm thinking about it, I don't, I couldn't confidently say Robinhood would last the test of time. Uh, like their business think, model, you think might might start to, to falter or slow? Or you think that people in general just would stop using Robinhood for an alternative? I don't think people would stop using Robinhood. I think Robinhood will cease to be um, sustainable within in of itself, right? Right. I don't. I don't think their crypto model is uh, even. I don't think their crypto model is even like. What do you call it? I think it's fucking stupid. I think they're. they're I think <laughs> that's people that's what buying. I would call it. <laughs> yeah, I think people buying crypto on Robinhood are getting literally robbed because it's not yours. Well, well, that that's. That's Robin Hood, you know, they, they take from the poor and give to the rich. That's the business <laughs> model. I, I, which I, I, it's crazy. That really is what it is, though. I mean, 
it, th that that phrase that adage you know if something's free chances are you are the product is so true yeah in so many things and um this is no exception you know the reason that it's free for you to go out and buy an option on a weekly call uh is because it really wasn't free you probably paid uh some form of multiple more than you really should have or if you're buying dog coin you know like you overpaid for it relative to but even you're not actually buying the the coin you're, you don't get it you can't take that dogecoin on robin hood and send it to your friend you just have the, it's not the, yours you just have the rights to the price of it yeah yeah interesting it's not yours so, so it's then like you're a, not actually buying it it's just a total return swap on the coin yeah it's 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 literally you're giving you're giving robin hood money for something they already owned like it's not yours when you buy a crypto and i don't even fully believe in crypto i'm not, i don't care it's it's invisible i care more about the physical life like the world i don't believe in crypto but i believe if you want to buy it it should be yours when you buy it right that makes sense i can get behind that it's th this is i have so many other questions going through my mind about like how does you know if you go out on, on coin so if you go out on coinbase or binance and go out and buy dogecoin right you impact the price because yeah. you're putting out a, a buy and you're actually sucking up liquidity on the sell side right yeah yep if you're on robin hood do you have the same impact because you don't actually own the coin or i guess it would really depend i guess it would depend on your order value because you're buying from what Robinhood owns. And I guess if, you, like, say if you make an order and they don't own, like, that amount, I, I, I don't know. It's hard to say because you're okay. also on their brokerage, so they could just placeholder you, right? Right. So in crypto, it sounds like Robinhood is what's referred to as a broker-dealer. So there's brokers and there's dealers. Brokers make money by, they go out, say you want to sell one coin. But, you, you know, you just want to sell it and you need to have obviously somebody on the other side of that transaction. Somebody needs to buy it from you. So you go to a broker and they find you a buyer, right, so that you can complete the transaction. A broker yeah. makes a profit based on the spread between that transaction. A dealer has things in their inventory and will buy and sell things out of their own inventory to make a profit. So if you want to go out and buy a Dogecoin, they will sell it to you out of their inventory, just like a supermarket where they are selling an item to you, but they bought that item at a lower price or at a slight discount somehow. Um, and so then you get upcharged because you went to the retail, the, you know, the big box store and bought it. And then a broker dealer makes money by doing both of them. So it sounds like on Robinhood side of things for crypto, they, they're, they're, they're on the dealer side of things but you don't actually get the asset, which is like the worst of both worlds. Yeah. <laughs> so, you I mean, you're of... still paying the, a fee, though. You're paying that upcharge so, um, from buying it out of their inventory. And they're making a profit off of you, whether it's free or not. Yeah, because when you buy it, what would they mark it as a sale, but not actually a sale because they still own it? Like, what do you call that? So they like, only, that's, that's so the even whole though model? you have the rights, so you have, you don't actually own the asset, you just own the rights to it, but it's still on Robinhood um, inventory sheets. Is that how it works? You you kind of just own like the value of it, right? That's, when you buy it, it's really interesting. I'm gonna have to look more into that because I don't. It doesn't sound like it's what is the word I'm searching. It doesn't sound like what is that word? 
that means something. It, it seems wrong, is what it seems like. Yeah. Like, something is wrong. It's off, for sure. Yeah, like... But but then, you know, we're, we're two pretty dumb guys, to be honest. <laughs> so, I mean, like, we can sit here and say that something doesn't feel right and something's not... Something's off. So, if we're sitting here and thinking that, obviously, somebody in charge, you know, at the SEC is looking at this and going, hey, this shit's fucked up. So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, if it doesn't take a genius, then my another question I have is like, there's so many regulatory hurdles Robin Hood faces because of the way they do business, because of the way that they have, they treat their clientele, which is against a lot of the rules that have already been established. So, I'm not really sure that investing in a company that you know has regulatory headwind is a wise decision. Do you, do you think that in the future, um robin hood gets kind of i guess they, they they get their dick slapped because they've been a little bit uh naughty with how they treat their clients i guess uh i mean or, or does it just go on forever and there's no in the, consequences that's, that's that's what i'm thinking I'm, I'm i've been trying to like figure out my my opinion on this the entire time but I think what happens is what happens usually is least resistance. I'm sure you've heard of the term. Yep. Um, is that nothing changes, or if anything does change, it's in favor of Robin Hood. Really? Okay. Yes. Interesting. So in that case, that that would be a pretty bullish argument for them. You know, in in, in terms of valuation, like hey, it doesn't really matter that you have all these headwinds, these potential, um, you know, events that could be brought up against them because long term nothing's going to change really you know there might be a, a hearing or this and that and i think we already saw that with gamestop well where you know you had vlad on the um you know congressional hearing and it was yeah. like a circus show you know like it was nothing but <laughs> entertainment there was nothing material that came out of that there was no legal action or financial um the, the whole thing was a p- that really impacted them in any way it was a PR stunt. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Do you think that's because? Um, here's an interesting question. Do you think that that's because there is Robin Hood actually isn't really at fault, or do you think that's because the political system and the way that they handle those kinds of things is broken, or probably oh. some kind of both? It's a mix of. It's a mix of. I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say Robin Hood's completely out of fault, but I wouldn't say they completely are. And I wouldn't say that the system's completely broken, but I wouldn't say that it's completely functional. <laughs> right. Uh, that's that's how most things go. It's like your car's on a piece of shit. It's a ton of tiny things on it that suck. Right, right. There's a, and, um, a, a scale or a spectrum to everything. There, nothing's yeah. in black and white. So since you're like, you're, you're in the field, what does the SEC actually do? Do they are they on vacation permanently? <laughs> yeah, they might as well be. Um, back in ye olden times, they used to be more active, and they would. Act so what? Twenty nineteen, twenty eighteen. Yeah, I would say really after the taper tantrum, um, you know, like the the uh, European debt issues, they really just haven't been around. Um, but like, I mean. Back in like 1980, 1970s, you better believe if you were running a fraud, the SEC would knock on your door. Now we give a fraud a $10 billion valuation and everybody knows it's a fraud. You know, like the fraud, uh, and I think Jim Chanos has a really good explanation of this where he talks about the fraud cycle leads the the economic and the market cycle 
where people like people are just willing to accept it and say, well, whatever. I know it's a fraud and it doesn't matter because it's going up, so I'm going to buy it and you know da 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 da. But that stuff didn't always happen, um, or it would happen, but it would be um, it would be met with some kind of repercussions. Whereas now, I don't think there's any repercussions for a lot of what um, the uh, financial scam artists do. So. I'm, I would say that they're not on a, I'm hoping, I, I guess I would say, that they're not on a permanent vacation. But their vacation does seem to be relatively extended, so. <laughs> <laughs> it almost it almost seems too easy to fraud. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right, right now in particular, I mean, talk about, like, there's just so many examples. Like, Nikola is a huge one. And it's still valued over a, uh, over a billion dollars. Right? And I know nowadays a billion dollars a lot of money. It used to be, but. That's just insane to me that it's trading at anything of zero. <laughs> no, like, did, did I ever tell you about the unlimited line of credit I found from Goldman Sachs? No, no, but I'm interested. I'm curious for it's, sure. I can't really describe it because it's technically wire fraud with extra steps. But <laughs> I, I will tell you that every single person right now has the ability to get unlimited line of credit with Goldman Sachs with one small trick. Doctors hate him. <laughs> right. No, Bain no, for real him. though. <laughs> for real though, I found like a huge flaw with their with with a card, and uh, I didn't abuse it because uh, I think that kind of shit would catch up with you because it's Goldman Sachs. But, right. Um. I mean, if you're trying to, it's it's akin to the uh the you know the guh kid. Right. Infinite it's, leverage. It, it's that. It's that. Interesting. And. I don't know, man. I think about it. Some like I sometimes I get out of bed and like I could just do that and like I don't know. I could just buy a, anything with that and just right. drop it into FDs. You get out of bed and you're like, I could be a. I'm choosing not to be a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm making the act. Well, I, it's it's more so like I I don't want to have to deal with the consequences. <laughs> right. Right. So what you do is you scam Goldman for a million dollars and then you put all that money to a really good legal team and like you know you hope to keep a third of it and it's like hey you're still up you know three hundred thousand dollars yeah. <laughs> isn't it their fault for allowing me to do it i it's both people like both people are responsible for the actions right and i think that this is something that new traders haven't really dealt with but in 2008 my biggest realization from that and it sounds so simple now, but my biggest realization is that both parties in any transaction are liable for the other side of somebody's transaction. You should know who you're doing business with and how that impacts you every time you do it. And you should know, if you can, how your business impacts the other side of the of the table every time you do business with, with them. And I don't think people really appreciate simplicity of just knowing who you're doing business with and what implications that has for you and your client at any given time particularly in banks but really in everything uh and it's crazy how quickly we've forgotten this i mean back in the the gfc when you if you were working at a a financial firm every day you were doing calculations to say what is my counterparty risk what happens if the other side of my trade goes under? What am I liable for? What does that mean for me? Nobody's doing that today. Nobody cares. And that nobody cared really prior to 2008 either. And 2008 was an extraordinary case. 
but I think that the benefits of knowing who's on the other side of what you're doing and how that impacts them and how that impacts you is super powerful and underestimated. And it's unfortunate that we've, you know, with our, our small chimpanzee brains, we've forgotten so quickly the benefits of it. I, you know how people compare like uh, the COVID crash to like, or like the market right now to like 1929? What, like, do you think that's accurate? Do you feel like we have like the same kind of like, Tur- like tulip frenzy kind of thing going on or no because i don't i don't see it oh it's so tough to say i think there's definitely a frenzy i i don't think fundamentally you can say that anything is fairly valued it like there is no way you can look at a lot of the assets that are trading at uh, like take tesla for example right there's no way you can manipulate their balance sheet manipulate their revenues or projections and come up with that being a fair value. It just doesn't make any sense. There's no well, basis for it. But I, th- I think fair value is such a hard conversation. Well, it is when the interest rate is 0%. When you can get 5 6 7% guaranteed, it puts everything in perspective, right? Because why would you take this enormous risk to get 10% when you can get a guaranteed 6%? You probably yeah. wouldn't. When there's no return and there is no guaranteed rate, then everything's worth infinity. So it doesn't really matter. Um, And that's, I think, where we're at now. Eventually, things will not be worth infinity. And that's the day of reckoning. Um, But when that comes, I'm not really sure. Like, all right, think about this. When you go to the grocery store and you buy an apple, do you second guess the fair value of the apple? No, but if you go to the grocery store and buy an apple and they ring it up and it's $20, are you going to guess the fair value of an apple? <laughs> okay, but, but hear me out. So when a grocery store goes to the apple farm and they buy a fucking buckload of apples, right? They have buckets and buckets and buckets. Right. They're bag holders. Because <laughs> if they don't sell these apples, what happens to the apples? Right. They, they, don't, they go they're bad. No good. But what if you just went to the Apple farm? You could get them for fucking wholesale price. Correct. Right? Yeah. Now, now think about this, but exponentially larger over the <laughs> through the dins and cries of, of uh, the, you know, kinks of the market, the, the, the weird issues, problems, overvaluations, just multiplied by the population of traders. The, the, the stocks or the grocery stores, there's just so many people in it that I don't think we can even call fair value even like, is that even an, a, is that even a fucking talking point anymore? Can you even like consider that like fair, fair value when it comes to the share price, not to like consider like the value of a company, like, or the fundamental value, but like think about the value of the share price. I don't even, I don't even know if that's an issue. I kind of agree with you, except for the fact that any time this argument has ever been brought up in the entire history of mankind, going back to like 1200 AD, um, things always fall apart. <laughs> so, which is my my hesitation, right? It makes sense. What you say makes sense, but things always come unglued when you make that argument that there is no fundamental basis for anything anymore because there's just so many external factors that are washing out that fundamental valuation. But anytime that is the case, the fundamental valuation always comes back to back people to bite people in the ass. So I understand the argument and I would agree with it, but not on a long term. Like I agree with you that yeah. you're correct right now, but I can't say for sure that that's the way it is permanently. And I would disagree that yeah, it no. is the way that it is permanently. 
I would say I I mean I would come off of saying that to say that it's not sustainable. It's like thinking about like like how a company runs. Mm-hmm. It's like I just going through Amazon and seeing like what can be delivered same day, what can be delivered two days from now, and thinking about like the logistics of that is fucking mind boggling. But then you think about like a mom and pop shop and it's so simple and easy to run and sustainable, you know, uh, hypothetically, but the more complicated something gets, the, the you know, lot less of a lifespan it has. Right. Yeah. Alrighty, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I want to thank you in particular, Will, for coming on and, and doing the show with me. I really enjoy getting to talk to you provided a interesting and unique perspective a lot of the time for myself so i hope other people are able to get something out of it and i anytime anytime cheney any day of the week any month of the year (laughs) i love it (laughs) i I love it well until next time uh i'll be seeing you around and i'll be seeing uh all the um the lovely listeners uh around for the next episode so later take care